the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering. Glad to have you with us. We'll hear a classic conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata, Heaven, Your Home. From a Higher Perspective, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program, and much, much more. We'll begin with uh, some of the day's headlines. Uh, The Biden administration was dealt a pretty major blow in its effort to control the ongoing border crisis when a federal judge blocked a rule introduced in May that makes migrants ineligible for asylum if they have entered illegally and failed to take advantage of explained or rather expanded lawful pathways set up by the federal government. Judge John Tigar, the U.S. District Court from Northern District of California, blocked the circumvention of lawful pathways rule in response to a lawsuit from a coalition of left wing immigration groups, which claimed the rule was similar to a Trump era transit ban that was similarly blocked. He found the rule is both substantively and procedurally invalid and has delayed his ruling from taking effect for 14 days to give the administration time to appeal. Now, the rule formed the centerpiece of the administration's strategy to deal with the expiration of Title 42, the public health order, in May. It presumes migrants to be ineligible for asylum if they have entered the United States illegally and have failed to claim asylum in a country through which they had already traveled. The administration has said it is designed to discourage irregular migration and encourage migrants to use the expanded legal pathway set up, including the use of controversial CBP-1 app, uh, which allows migrants to apply for one of the more than 1,400 appointments at a port of entry each day to be paroled into the United States. Well, that presumption of ineligibility can be challenged if migrants can show exceptional circumstances and officials have rejected comparisons to the Trump era travel ban. The rule also doesn't apply to unaccompanied minors. The rule was uh, formed, uh, has formed a central cog in the administration's effort to tackle a post title 42 surge along with messaging, cooperation with NGOs and Mexico and a stiffening of traditional Title VIII penalties. It's also set up processing centers across Central America, uh, increased refugee admissions, and set up a special parole system for up to 30,000 Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Haitians each month to fly into the United States. Meanwhile, the Fed is set to raise interest rates to a 22-year high after a June pause. It's widely expected to deliver another interest rate hike tomorrow, resuming its campaign to jack up borrowing costs and crush inflation after a brief pause in June. The projected quarter percentage point hike would set the federal fund rate between 5.25 and 5.5 percent, further restricting economic activity as the borrowing costs for homes, cars and other items march ever higher. It would mark the highest rate since 2001 and the 11th increase in nearly a year and a half. This is a rate that's a 22-year high after that pause. 
Wall Street uh, is even more focused on Chairman Jerome Powell's press conference at 2.30 Eastern Time as they uh, look for additional clues about what comes next in the Fed's inflation fight. Powell may leave the door open to at least one more rate hike this year, depending on upcoming economic data releases, even with signs that inflation is continuing to cool very slowly. The real importance of the meeting will be what is said at the statement and the press conference after the meeting. That's what a senior economist uh, says. Everyone will be searching for any clues that the Fed has now finished its job and won't hike any more. The Fed Fund's future march is uh, leaning heavily that way. Well, policymakers will meet three more times this year in September, November and December. So don't hold your breath. And although investors are betting that this will be the final rate increase in the Fed's tightening cycle, others are less sure, given the surprisingly resilient economy, which could threaten to refuel inflation. That's coming up tomorrow, the announcement. Republicans and gun rights activists say that the Biden administration unlawfully handed out federal funds to states that didn't qualify under a program intended to promote so-called red flag laws. In 2022, Congress passed and the president signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act in response to mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas, that left dozens dead. Well, the law incentivizes states to pass extreme risk protection laws, also called red flag laws, that allows uh, members of the public and law enforcement to petition courts for a civil order to temporarily suspend a person's access to firearms for fear that person might do violence. Well, after gun rights uh, advocates raised Second Amendment concerns, Congress included requirements that states apply for federal grants to implement red flag laws, include certain due process protections. But Senator Roger Marshall, a Republican out of Kansas, and Representative Alex Mooney, a Republican out of West Virginia, say in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland that the Justice Department has handed federal funds to states that did not meet the minimum due process criteria. The letter accuses the administration of ignoring Congress and demands to know why grants to at least eight states and territories with no red flag laws on the books nevertheless received federal funds under the Department of Justice program. The letter was signed by seven GOP senators and 26 House lawmakers. The Department of Justice appears to have weaponized the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act to illegally fund ineligible red flag laws and bribe pro-gun states into passing gun confiscation laws, the lawmakers wrote. Since the passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, no states have revised their statutes to comply with the due process requirements imposed by the 117th Congress, the letter states. Nevertheless, the Bureau of Justice programs has funded every state that applies with a red flag um, gun confiscation law on the books without enforcing Congress's due process requirements. The uh, federal government should have uh, no part in funding state-level gun confiscation programs, which violate the due process rights of gun owners. Well, the Republicans, quoting a myth versus fact sheet from the Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn's office, say Congress made an explicit uh, clarity in the uh, legislation that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was not intended to require or incentivize states to adopt red flag laws. The law also prohibits federal funds from being used to lobby state legislatures to pass any legislation or law. Disturbingly, several states and territories without red flag laws on the books have been granted funding for the creation and implementation of such programs. Those states include Arizona, Arkansas, Kansas, Minnesota, West Virginia. 
It appears that this bipartisan Safer Communities Act grant program is being used by the federal government to influence states into enacting red flag gun confiscation laws. They're calling it federal bribery program and demand that the Department of Justice explain the lawful purpose of its federal grants to states without red flag laws. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a bombshell study authored by Dr. Peter McCullough and other physicians and medical researchers was quickly censored within 24 hours after its publication because it showed clear evidence that the COVID-19 shots were responsible for some deaths. Out of 325 autopsies from various global locations, the study revealed the COVID shot directly caused or significantly contributed to up to 74% of those deaths, again, out of 325 autopsies. The Lancet, a renowned medical journal, published the study titled A Systematic Review of Autopsy Findings in Deaths After COVID-19 Vaccination on the 5th of July of this year on its preprint site, while the study began the months-long peer review process. However, the Lancet took less than 24 hours to remove uh, to remove it, citing the study fell short of the journal's screening criteria and that the study's methods did not merit its conclusions. So is it a valid study or not? Well, Dr. McCullough, an internist, an epidemiologist, and one of the most published cardiologists in America, with more than a 1,000 peer-reviewed publications to his credit, conducted the study with eight other researchers. The co-authors and included senior research scientists in epidemiology from Yale University, Dr. Harvey Risch, top pathologist Dr. Roger Hodkinson of Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, former Department of Health and Human Services official Dr. Paul Alexander. The project was approved through the University of Michigan School of Public Health, and Dr. McCullough said the team used a standard scientific method known as the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis to evaluate the autopsies. Dr. McCullough stated this standard search methodology is something he is... uh, He has used his whole career. Well, collectively, they reviewed 678 studies investigating possible causal links between COVID-19 shots and death and identified 325 autopsies meriting further investigation. Well, the study stated each autopsy was independently reviewed by three physicians to determine the cause of death. And the investigation revealed a total of 240 deaths or 73.9 percent of that 300 plus number were independently adjudicated as directly due to or significantly contributed to by COVID-19 injection. Among adjudicators, there was complete independent agreement, all three physicians, of injection causing or contributing to death in 203 cases, or 62.5%. The most implicated organ system received fatal injury was the cardiovascular system at 53%, and most of the deaths occurred within a week from the person's last vaccination. Well, these results bear similar um, similarity rather to a November 2022 peer-reviewed study by leading pathologist Dr. Peter Schermacher and uh, two other top German scientists. This study examined 25 deaths, finding five of them likely died exclusively from the COVID injection, and all five died within 20 days of receiving the injection. Well, according to Dr. McCullough, before The Lancet briefly published this study, it was rejected by both the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association as not a priority. He noted that in the hours before The Lancet took it down, the study had 30,000 views, averaging about 20 views a minute. 
Dr. McCullough has been censored before without a definitive reason. In October of 21, the Lancet's published uh, um, Elsevier retracted a, a different study he co-authored with molecular biologist Dr. Jessica Rose just days after it was published. The findings from that study showed mitocarditis spiked in teenagers after COVID-19 injections. And despite being peer-reviewed, Elsevier uh, never reinstated the study, though it can be found through an Internet archive. Just as federal uh, uh, federal judge ruled in uh, July of this year in Missouri versus Biden that the government pressured social media companies to censor and suppress information critical of COVID-19 injections, Dr. McCullough and his co-author, Dr. Rich, think medical journals are subjected to that same external pressure. Dr. Rich stated he believed their recent study was censored at the behest of the Trusted News Initiative or a similar organization because of the study's strong evidence that some COVID-19 injections have led to death. The TNI was founded in 2019, again, the Trusted News Initiative, by the British Broadcasting Company as an industry collaboration between major news outlets and global technology companies such as Google, Facebook, and others for the purpose of combating disinformation worldwide. TNI's uh, partners alert each other to disinformation that poses an immediate threat to life, so content can be reviewed promptly by platforms, whilst publishers ensure they don't unwittingly republish dangerous falsehoods, end quote. Well, it's pure government-directed censorship, even after the Missouri versus Biden injunction, stated Dr. Risch. Dr. McCullough noted their study is the largest summary of autopsies of COVID-19 shot-related deaths, and its medical censorship speaks to the importance of their findings. They're trying to kill the study so the world doesn't see the data, he stated. Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver said scientists are validating the danger of the COVID-19 shots and confirming these injections have never been safe nor effective, at least for some. Censoring scientific data um, and the debate is reprehensible and dangerous. The government, news media and elements of the medical and scientific communities are intentionally and knowingly trying to deceive the public. Liberty Council provided broadcast quality TV interviews uh, on the subject that can be found online. In other news, the Pentagon is refusing to reverse its policy to fund travel for female troops seeking abortions. They're doing so even as hundreds of military promotions are held up by a number of Senate Republicans who say the practice of abortion tourism is a violation of the Hyde Amendment, a longstanding law that prohibits taxpayer funding of the procedure. According to the office of Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville, the hold simply requires military nominations and promotions to be processed through regular order rather than being approved by unanimous consent in large batches. Now, Town Hall is learning that the Pentagon's policy has no restrictions and women are free to travel on the taxpayer dollar to obtain abortions at any point in the pregnancy. This includes late term abortions in states where it is still permitted, like Colorado and New York. The Department of Defense confirmed at an uh, Senate Armed Service Committee briefing that female service members or their dependents can use taxpayer dollars to travel to a state at any time during the pregnancy, including up until the moment of birth for an abortion, a Senate aide uh, confirmed. Earlier in the week, the White House justified the abortion policy and claimed it was essential for female troops to receive abortions due to a self-inflicted recruiting crisis. Meanwhile, the Pentagon gives uh, far more benefits to women seeking abortions than to troops who want to attend family funerals. Hmm. 
President Biden will reportedly establish a national monument this week to honor Emmett Till, the black teenager from Chicago, whose 1955 lynching while on vacation in Mississippi helped galvanize the civil rights movement. A White House official who spoke on condition of anonymity before the president spoke reportedly told the Associated Press that the president will sign a proclamation to create the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument across three sites in Illinois and Mississippi. And that announcement was made earlier in the day. Tuesday today is the anniversary of Emmett Till's birth in 1941. His mother's insistence on an open casket to reveal how her 14-year-old son had been brutalized And Jet Magazine's decision to publish those photos of his mutilated body contributed to the rousing of the civil rights movement. Consumers may need to prepare to spend more for a gallon of gas tied to the rising cost of oil and um, heat-induced refinery outages as temperatures across the nation soar to the highest of the summer this week. The national average price for a gallon of gasoline could rise 5 to 10 cents this week with increases of 10 to 25 cents a gallon in some states, according to the head of petroleum analysis for GasBuddy tweeting on Monday. Currently, the average price for a gallon of gasoline is about $3.58. You're lucky to find that in Oregon or Washington. For the week ending July 20th, three cents higher from the previous week. Still, it's uh, 88 cents less than a year ago, according to the latest report of AAA. Uh, Dehan said both gas and oil have reached their highest price points since April, with extreme heat also leading to some refinery outages and with July gasoline inventories at their lowest level since 2015. We're primed to see cost increases showing up in force this week across the country. He added already this morning, Gas Buddy is seeing large price increases in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky and Florida. Gas demand also went up. Uh, last week, rising slightly from $8.76 to $8.86, um, uh, 6 million barrels a day, rather, according to data from the Energy Information Administration. At the same time, total domestic gasoline stocks decreased. Um, meanwhile, the price of oil is also up, rising around 6.6% the last five days and approximately 13.7% the last month. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, Johnny Erickson Tata. She's going to talk about her book on heaven. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, Republicans are moving to dismantle six woke Biden policies at Veterans Affairs. House Republicans on Tuesday advanced a spending bill for the Department of Veterans Affairs and related agencies that they hope can be used to roll back the administration's policies on abortion, transgender health care and other lightning rod issues. The White House said Monday in a statement that it would veto the bill because it would result in devastating consequences. But the spending bill is expected to come to the House floor for a vote this week before lawmakers leave for the month-long recess. And it may become even more objectionable to the White House, depending on which amendments from conservative lawmakers get a vote and are attached to the bill. Republicans are proposing six amendments for the $152 billion spending bill, which amounts to an $18 billion increase from last year's bill. The amendment would stop the military from removing Confederate symbols, block funds for gender affirming surgeries, withhold funding from drag shows, prohibit funds for ESG initiatives, curb abortion access and ban the president's climate change policies. 
The Senate is encouraging the Pentagon to quickly develop artificial intelligence driven wearable neural sensors that would be used to transmit data to commanders about the physical and mental status of soldiers in the field. The Senate Armed Services Committee released its annual defense policy bill this month, which was accompanied by a report that said senators in both parties want the Pentagon to move faster to develop this piece of AI technology to potentially hundreds of thousands of U.S. warfighters. Hunter Biden's artwork has reportedly brought in at least $1.3 million, and one of the buyers was a prominent Democratic donor who was appointed by President Biden to a prestigious commission. Documents obtained by Business Insider show that the buyer is Elizabeth Hirsch Naftali, a real estate investor from Los Angeles. The president appointed Naftali to the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad in July of last year, eight months after the First Son's first art opening. It's not clear, however, whether her purchase came before or after the appointment. Naftali is a prominent Democratic donor, having donated more than $200,000 to the Biden Victory Fund during the 2020 election cycle and over 30000 to the Democratic National Committee this year. She also maxed out to the Biden campaign with uh, two $3,300 donations in April of this year. The documents obtained by Business Insider also indicate another buyer purchased Hunter Biden's artwork for $875,000, though their identity has not been revealed. The report comes as the House Oversight Committee, House Judiciary Committee and House Ways and Means Committee are conducting a joint investigation into the federal probe into Hunter Biden and whether prosecutorial decisions were influenced by politics. The push to legalize recreational marijuana across the U.S. has been linked to a troubling rise in mental health issues, suicides and an increased risk for psychosis. But money hungry cannabis investors are leading the charge to commercialize the drug nationwide. Dr. Kevin Sabat warned on Sunday, Sabat, a former White House drug policy advisor to Presidents Obama, Bush and Clinton, highlighted the unintended consequences of legalizing the substance on Sunday night in America, slamming the addiction for profit pot industry for encouraging widespread drug usage to benefit their bottom line. The net result hasn't been good at all. Marijuana is the most misunderstood drug in the country today. It is so much stronger than it used to be. This is a totally different drug, Sabat said. It's been genetically bred to be much stronger than it ever has been, and it's been driven by a money-hungry addiction for profit industry that resembles really the worst of tobacco and alcohol. If you think about it, it gets you intoxicated like alcohol and tobacco, and then you inhale all these harmful compounds, he went on to say. At least 23 U.S. states have already legalized recreational marijuana for adults with more expected to follow suit in the coming years. Washington and Colorado became the first states to approve legal recreational use in 2012. New York uh, legalized marijuana recreationally in 2021. And of course, Oregon uh, has done the same. ABC, CBS, NBC ignored drug trafficking uh, with selective coverage, focusing solely on the plight of illegal immigrants during uh, border coverage when there was border coverage, a media research center study shows. And Donna Hansborough, the 68-year-old Lowe's employee who was fired for violating the company's policy on stopping the theft of merchandise, was reinstated earlier today. We talked about it yesterday. In a statement sent to um, the media, Lowe's spokesperson 
said Hansborough accepted the offer to return. She was quite distressed when she was let go. After senior management became aware of the incident and spoke to Donna Hansborough today, we are reinstating her job, and we are pleased that she has accepted the offer to return to Lowe's. First and foremost, there's nothing more important than the safety of our customers and associates. Products can be replaced. People cannot. We continue to work closely with law enforcement to investigate and prosecute those who are responsible for this theft and violent attack. The statement read, well, Hansborough was initially fired after she attempted to stop thieves from stealing roughly $2,000 worth of merchandise from a Georgia store. The longtime employee who worked for the company about 13 years was punched in the face three times on the 25th of of June after she grabbed one of the trio's shopping carts. Police identified the three suspects. One was taken into custody and police are still searching for the other two who are uncle and niece. They know their names. They know their faces. So it's only a matter of time. Idaho resident Gabriel Wrench was awarded a hefty settlement for his 2020 arrest during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Wrench spoke out about his case on Monday and argued his arrest was the result of liberalism and cancel culture. Wrench was arrested in September of 2020, along with two other churchgoers for not wearing masks to an outdoor worship service. The three brought the lawsuit forward the following year, alleging their First and Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The city of Moscow ultimately agreed to settle for $300,000. Wrench was arrested in the middle of a worship service. In the video of the incident, officers were seen taking a hymn book out of Wrench's hands before leading him away in handcuffs. The three were then detained for several hours. They violated my First Amendment rights in a small town, he said. And I think really what you're seeing in the city of Moscow is a microcosm of what's going on nationwide, end quote. The city of Moscow is known as a liberal college town, home of the University of Idaho, in an overall red state. Well, Twitter's new X logo may pose a legal issue for the tech company in the future as online records reveal that Meta trademarked an X logo years ago. A record from the um, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office shows that Meta applied to trademark uh, their own X logo in May 25 and 2017. To trademark, or rather the trademark, was officially registered in June of twenty of 19. Meta-owned X logo appears um, to be two opposite angles assembled into an X shape. The white and blue, um, light blue symbols are overlapped on a blue background, whereas Twitter's logo is a strikingly different black and white X design. Twitter's new logo also resembles a Unicode character called Mathematical Double Struck Capital X. Okay, I know everyone is excited for a possible Musk versus Zuck cage fight, but the potential trademark battle could be even better. So says lawyer Daniel Heitner, writing on Twitter, Meta Platforms Inc. owns the trademark registration for an X design mark. We'll see how this all pans out. Well, Hunter Biden's former friend, in fact, his best friend, Devin Archer, is expected to testify to how Joe Biden met with his son's Ukrainian business partners via the phone. Well, in a direct challenge to the Biden family narrative, Hunter Biden's former best friend, who served as a director of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma along with him, will reportedly say that Hunter Biden put his father on the phone roughly two dozen times as Hunter spoke to his foreign business partners or business investors. Joe Biden has repeatedly claimed he did not speak with his son about Hunter's foreign business dealings, 
Devin Archer, 48, will testify before the House Oversight Committee and is expected to say the calls happened in his presence. Now, he hasn't actually testified yet, so we'll have to see what he actually says. RNC Research says, I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I've never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their business, period. And they say, well, that's a prevarication. Colin Rugg points out, despite all of the growing evidence, Biden is still lying to the American people and claiming that he never spoke to his son about these business dealings. Archer will also confirm how Joe Biden was used as leverage during a meeting between um, the Russian billionaire and uh, Yelena Baturina and her husband, former Moscow mayor. Uh, If this were Trump, the impeachment process would have begun a long time ago. We'll see what, again, actually happens. And Democratic primary rival Robert Kennedy Jr. says he backs a probe of the $10 million bribery claim leveled against President Biden and his son by a Ukrainian oligarch who headed the notoriously corrupt Burisma Energy Company. The issues that are now coming up are worrying enough that we really need a real investigation of what happened, Kennedy said. Um, And uh, in an interview with Maria Bartiromo, Sunday Morning Futures, Robert Kennedy tells Maria Bartiromo he believes allegations on Burisma should be investigated. Of course, he might be a bit bitter following that hearing in which he was forbidden to actually answer questions that were posed to him. We'll watch it all play out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, top officials with the Biden administration are traveling to Mexico on a two-day swing for meetings with Mexican and Canadian officials on the opioid crisis and migration. The White House said early yesterday, Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, President Biden's Homeland Security Advisor, is leading the delegation, and she's joined by senior officials from the Departments of State, Justice and Homeland Security, and the White House Office of National Drug Control. Well, the group will be in Mexico City on Monday and Tuesday for bilateral and trilateral meetings with officials from Mexico and Canada to discuss efforts to combat the opioid crisis and cooperation to address our regional migration challenge, the White House officials said. The White House said officials will also talk about the steady flow of migrants across the southern border. They want to build a previous steps to crack down on human smugglers, increase legal pathways into the U.S., and further modernize and secure the southern border. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, during a meeting in Beijing last month, proposed setting up a new working group with China to try to resuscitate stalled talks on combating fentanyl. Chinese officials, however, uh, stuck to their long-held position that the U.S. must first remove the sanctions on the police institute um, as a uh, precondition of restarting joint counter-narcotics work. The people familiar said stopping the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. is a Biden administration priority with the opioid scourge unleashing a wave of deaths across the country. U.S. officials see China as having a critical role in that effort. Chinese companies produce chemicals known as precursors that are shipped to cartels in Mexico, which use them to produce fentanyl and smuggle them into the United States. Sanctions punishing Chinese Communist Party figures and entities implicated in the atrocities against Uyghurs have become a major flashpoint in the administration's effort to seek a detente with Beijing. There's some discussion of waiving um, that in favor of the drug discussions. Internal Revenue Service agents will no longer make unannounced visits to taxpayers' homes, the agency said on Monday, in a policy shift meant to protect employees' safety due to the fear of potentially irate taxpayers answering the door. 
Since at least the 1950s, revenue agents have knocked on tens of thousands of taxpayers' doors each year. The new policy will reduce these visits to no more than a few hundred per year and only under unusual circumstances, in quotes. Instead of making house calls to taxpayers who have ignored overdue tax notices in the mail, the agency will send letters that instruct taxpayers to schedule a visit with the revenue officer. Thanks to Jim Jordan and his staff for pushing this issue, the IRS shouldn't be making surprise visits and they should get credit for making the change. Rather, shouldn't. The uh, pol- the president of the United States uh, tripping and falling is never a good moment in the throes of a reelection campaign. But when the president is 80 years old and already faces concerns that he's too old for another term, it's something of a crisis. The president's answer to voters who question whether he's up to the rigors of a second term is simple. Watch me. Well, the trouble is voters are watching and what they're seeing is hardening impressions that it's time for him to step aside. Polling shows apart from being the most um, a taxing job in the world and on the world stage, the presidency is also the most public and signs of advancing age are tough to miss. An iconic image of the modern presidency is the chief executive uh, walking up the stairs to the majestic Air Force One, then turning at the doorway and waving. More and more, Biden is uh, uh, foregoing the long staircase for the shorter staircase that takes him up through the plane's belly. Biden's use of a shorter staircase, which, of course, reduces the risk of a televised fall that goes viral, has more than doubled since the president's tumble at the commencement ceremony. Other age compensating measures are logistical and probably familiar to many who reached a certain stage in life. Extra large font on his teleprompter and note cards to remind him of the points he wants to make in meetings. Now, these are... um, accommodations that I don't think most of us are necessarily opposed to if they just make it easier to navigate. We've had a president who sat in a wheelchair, only stood when he thought it was important. The question is whether or not there is cognitive capacity. I don't care if you're 80 or 85. If you're if you have the capacity, I'm not sure the president does. And that's what most people are pondering at this point. Well, Israeli lawmakers voted on Monday to uh, in favor, rather, of limiting the court's power to block some government decisions, despite six months of major protests in the country and pressure from the United States to slow down action on the legislation. The Knesset or 120 member Israeli legislature voted 64 to zero on Monday on the first part of the judicial reform plan proposed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's conservative coalition. The opposition members boycotted the vote, allowing the legislation to pass in its original form. Last-ditch efforts by the country's largest labor union and by ceremonial President Isaac Herzog to propose compromises failed, and Netanyahu held his coalition together in a party-line vote on that bill. CNN inaccurately described the new reform as blocking the courts from reviewing all government policy. That was inaccurate. Katie Pavlage waves in, saying... Um, The left's latest end of democracy freakout in Israel is ridiculous and dishonest. Reform limits power of an unelected Supreme Court to overturn votes cast by elected representatives, no matter who is in power, based on reasonableness, since Israel doesn't have a constitution. It returns power to the elected officials, actually expanding power of democracy and holding those who make those decisions accountable to the people. 
Chesa Bowden, the disgraced former district attorney of San Francisco, who's been ousted in June of 2022 in a recall election, is earning $210,000 a year at his new job leading a research and advocacy center at UC Berkeley's law school. UC Berkeley announced in May that Bowden would head a new center, the Criminal Law and Justice Center at the public university. Bowden, who has said the center would give him a better opportunity to create lasting progress than through public service. Hmm. Uh, He is one of many liberal prosecutors across the country who received support from billionaire mega donor George Soros was recalled from office last year amid an increase in crime in San Francisco that was partly blamed on his office's decision to avoid prosecuting certain crimes and seek lighter sentences uh, that did not involve jail time. Well, now he has a better opportunity to influence criminal law and justice moving forward from his new well-paid position. Well, Republicans dominate the top 10 in most popular governor poll. Glenn Youngkin reaching an all-time high approval. Republican governors dominate a new survey of the most popular top 25 in the United States, including a handful considering a 2024 GOP presidential bid or in the vice presidential rumor mill. The morning consult list shows 16 Republicans of the top 25 governors with the highest approval ratings, including seven of the top 10. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's approval rating hits an all-time high. Uh, uh, July 23, 57% approval rating, 32% less so. Belief in God and angels has reached its um, all-time low among Americans. I'm not sure belief in angels is necessarily essential, but the percentage of Americans who believe in God, heaven, and angels hit a record low in a new Gallup survey that also found belief in hell and the devil reaching a record low, too. The new survey released Thursday found that 74% of Americans say they believe in God, a decline from 79%. Uh, in 2016 and 90 percent in 2004 who answered this the that way similarly 69 percent of americans say they believe in angels and 67 percent in heaven both significant declines from earlier polls now there's been a broad misunderstanding of who and what angels are so perhaps that's not necessarily a negative thing perhaps they'll seek more uh, clarification on what they're actually considering. But at the same time, nearly three in 10 U.S. adults don't believe in the devil or hell, while almost two in 10 don't believe in angels in heaven. 12% say they do not believe in God. Frequent um, churchgoers, uh, Protestants and Republicans are the most likely subgroups to say they believe in all five. All right, we're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. In the second hour of the program, a conversation I had with Johnny Erickson Tata on the subject of heaven. She has a unique perspective on the subject. We'll also look at um, efforts to fix America's loneliness problem and peddling um, well pornography to kids endorsed by some that might be surprising and questionable. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up on our next couple of segments, Johnny Erickson Tata, Heaven, Your Home for a, from a Higher Perspective. That's coming up later this hour. Continuing our march through uh, some of the day's headlines, um, yet another piece of evidence has been added to a growing pile that 
keeps un, uh, undercutting the uh, claim that the president never involved uh, was involved in his son's foreign business dealings. With a hearing expected tomorrow from Hunter Biden's former best friend and UPS and the Teamsters have reached a deal. United Parcel Service and the Teamsters announced today that the two sides reached a tentative agreement on a new contract that will avert the threat of a strike beginning in August. The current UPS Teamsters collective bargaining agreement, which is the largest private sector CBA in North America, is set to expire the 31st of this month. And union members were poised to begin a strike on August 1st if the two sides were unable to reach an agreement. The UPS Teamsters Union, roughly 340,000 members, voted in June to authorize a strike with 97 percent of voting members in favor. The deal comes as the two sides return to the negotiating table. Uh, after talks had broken down in recent weeks, UPS Teamsters will vote to ratify the new agreement next month with the electronic voting beginning on August the 3rd and concluding on the 22nd. On Monday, Russian forces attacked a port on the Danube River near Ukraine's border with Romania. A grain storage facility was struck as Russian uh, Russia recently ended its agreement last year to not attack Ukraine's grain shipments in the Black Sea. This attack is the closest Moscow has come to hitting a NATO country since Russia's forces invaded Ukraine last year. The attack signifies Russia is stepping up its efforts to cripple Ukraine's economy. Well, good news. Maskless churchgoers will receive a big payout. In September of last year, Gabriel Wrench, along with two others, were arrested by Moscow Idaho police uh, during an outdoor worship service because they were not wearing masks. On Monday, the city of Moscow agreed to a large settlement, $300,000, with Wrench after he sued over having his First and Fourth Amendment rights violated. Speaker McCarthy indicated Republicans are moving toward an impeachment inquiry of President Biden, and the president's uh, threatened to veto a GOP military medical care spending bill over trans surgery and abortion restrictions. China hacked top State Department officials' emails ahead of John Kerry's climate meeting in Beijing. And Miss Italy announced men are not allowed and they won't jump on the trans activism bandwagon. A young man is publicly sharing his testimony about how undergoing gender transition procedures as an adolescent rendered him a patient for life and amounts to self-harm. The testimony is the latest example of a growing number of individuals who are detransitioning away from a transgender identity over physical and mental health concerns. Kobe, who withheld his identity for privacy, recently told Fox News that if he had not been influenced by transgender ideology that has proliferated online in recent years, he likely would have just stayed a feminine boy. And there's nothing wrong with that. End quote. Kobe shared that he began taking puberty blockers at age 13 and estrogen at 16. He then underwent castration surgery at 19. I was like, oh, wow, this is so great. I'm locked in my transition. But then everything started to crack and I couldn't ignore the complications. I couldn't ignore that I mutilated myself pretty much with the permission of a psychiatrist. It's insane now looking back. It's just self-harm, you know, end quote. He went on to describe how he is trying to reclaim my manhood. It's hard. I have breasts and I have the hip development of a woman because I started estrogen young. I have no gonads. You know, it's hard. My skull never really masculinized, he went on to say. In order to start transitioning as a minor, Kobe followed the advice of older trans identifying individuals who told him to play the suicide card in order to obtain puberty blockers and hormones. I started using like the suicide tactics because that's what they are. That's what they tell us to do. I don't want to use the word groom, but 
We are like taught. There were times when I thought I was genuinely suicidal over gender dysphoria, but I think it was all just stuff that was in my head. I don't think I would have ever been suicidal about being biologically male if I had never been exposed to that stuff, end quote. He goes on. I was expecting it to help me to help my mental health, and it didn't do anything. Colby explained, I just wasted so much time and all I did really was become a medical patient for life. He went on to relate how puberty blockers permanently stunted his growth and how he is now worried that he might have osteoporosis because of pretty severe back pain just going up the spinal cord. He further describes losing any sexual function, just uh, joint pain, brain fog causing the Uh, The loss of train of thought, random bouts of extreme anger, developing an eating disorder due to metabolism issues and urination issues due to his castration surgery. But since uh, deciding to detransition and starting to take testosterone, which he will have to take indefinitely since his body no longer produces it naturally, he has a new lease on life. What a tragic story. You can read the the, uh, bulk of that story in the Washington Stand. In other news, Gavin Newsom imposed a $1.5 million fine on a California school district for rejecting a textbook discussing LGBT activism. Well, on this day in history, 1866, Ulysses S. Grant is named General of the Army of the United States, the first officer to hold the rank. 1946, the U.S. detonates an atomic bomb near Bikini Atoll in the Pacific in the first underwater test of the device. 1952, Puerto Rico becomes a self-governing Commonwealth of the United States. 1960, a Woolworth store in Greensboro, North Carolina, that had been the scene of a sit-in protest against its whites-only lunch counter, drops its segregation policy. 1972, the notorious Tuskegee, Tuskegee syphilis experiment comes to light as the Associated Press reports that for the previous four decades... The U.S. Public Health Service, in conjunction with the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, had been allowing poor rural black male patients with syphilis to go without treatment, even allowing them to die as a way to study the disease. 1978, Louis Joy Brown, the first test tube baby, is born in Oldham, England. 1984, Soviet cosmonaut Svetlana Savitskaya becomes the first woman to walk in space as she carries out more than three hours of experiments outside the orbiting space station. 1994, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Jordan's King Hussein sign a declaration at the White House ending their country's 46-year-old former state of, formal state of war. 2002, Zacharias Musawi declares he is guilty of conspiracy in the September 11, 2001 terror attacks, then dramatically withdraws his plea at his arraignment in Alexandria, Virginia. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, politically correct financier Jeffrey Epstein, facing sex trafficking charges, is found injured in his jail cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City in what law enforcement officials describe as a possible suicide attempt. Epstein survives his injuries but would die in an apparent suicide weeks later on the 10th of August. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest became a quadriplegic. She had a diving accident in 1967. She's the founder of a ministry to the disabled, and she writes with an eternal perspective. Her book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, 
is a book that's been rewritten in light of years of serving sitting in a wheelchair. In the book, the founder of Johnny and Friends tells her readers about the blessings that came with her suffering. She says, 50 years of paralysis, 50 years in a wheelchair, I have no regrets. Now that gives us a moment to pause. Everything else, everything this world has to offer, she writes, pales, fades to less than nothing in comparison to daily companionship with the Son of God and the prospect of being home with him forever. Well, of course, I'm referring to Johnny Erickson Tata. She's founder and CEO of Johnny and Friends, an organization that that um, uh, accelerates Christian outreach to and uh, with the disability community. She is also the author of numerous best-selling books, including When God Weeps, Diamonds in the Dust, and A Spectacle of Glory. Johnny and her husband, Ken, have been married for 36 years, and she joins us today to talk about the re-release of her profound book, Heaven, Your Real Home. Johnny Erickson Tata, it is a pleasure to have you back. Oh, Georgine, thanks for having me, and of course, uh, all our friends listening today. Now, this book, Heaven, was released originally in 1995, but you decided to update and re-release the book because you've experienced so much more of life uh, since that first release. Talk a little bit about um, the first version as compared to the, the second edition, looking back over those many years. Well, um, not long ago, about a year or so ago, I decided to pick up that book that I wrote 25 years ago, Heaven, Your Old Home, you mentioned it. But when I was reading it, I, I just thought, you know, I've got so much more to say. This In this book, is like... Um, like only a, a story half told because I'm in such a different place in my journey right now and in body and my soul and spirit. It, it feels like I've come such a great distance. Now that might be because what, you know, 52 years in a wheelchair and uh, daily living with the effects of gravity on my aging paralyzed body. It might be uh, because of the battle with cancer I had back in 2010. And of course now it's recurred and I'm battling it again. Obviously, uh, it could be uh, day after day living with chronic pain, but my life now looks different to me now than it did 25 years ago. I've, I've, I've studied more. I have suffered more. I have endured more. I've learned more. I've prayed more. And I guess, Georgina, I've just fallen in love with Jesus. Hmm. And so I, I wanted to talk about that in this uh, revised edition of my book on heaven. Now you write in the preface to the new edition that the longer you journey with your eyes on heaven, the more you begin to see. I think many of us might assume that living with a suffering that increases over time, you might have less regard for uh, the things that the scriptures have to say about heaven, that bitterness uh, might settle in. But you write just the opposite, that you long for heaven in a different way than you did in those early days, uh, but have come to understand it perhaps a bit better and long for it differently. Absolutely. You know, we often, when we, when we think about heaven, uh, we can't help but think of uh, 24 karat gold streets and tree-lined crystal rivers and uh, rainbow thrones and uh, lakes of, of, of made of glass and, it, and, and the new Jerusalem, which looks like uh, you know, probably uh, pales the city of Oz in comparison. I mean, it just doesn't look very appealing. It doesn't look very attractive. But heaven isn't so much a place of of 24 karat gold streets and and uh, 
tree-lined avenues that flow from a throne in the center of this magnificent city. No, heaven is more of a person. But I didn't say nearly enough about that in the first book. Um, I, I just want people to understand that to long for heaven is to long for Jesus. And, and if, we don't have, if we don't have good thoughts about heaven, if we don't get excited about going there, if we're not investing our heart's treasures there, then I, I would beg to say that perhaps we're not searching after Jesus hard enough. Mm. If, because if we don't love Jesus, if we're not in love with Jesus, we're, we're not going to be excited about heaven. But if we do love him, oh my goodness, wherever he is, we want to be. And of course, that's in heaven. So in this book, um, I talk a lot about my friend, the Lord Jesus, who's closer than a brother. He is my bridegroom, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's the king. He's my king. And prolonged suffering, Georgina, I think has given me that focus. As, as the day slipped by, as I deal with chronic pain daily, and now this second bat- battle with stage three cancer, my focus is much, much more on Jesus, which means my focus is much more on heaven. Mm. You point out that in the early days of your paralysis, you were fascinated by heaven because uh, you would be healed there. Um, it was an escape from the reality that you uh, lived at the time and still live in even more painful ways. But you write that your perception of heaven has changed as you've gained spiritual maturity. And that should really be the trajectory of our understanding in regard for heaven, regardless of our physical circumstance, should it not? Oh, absolutely. You know, often when we think of heaven, we think of what we're going to get. We think of what we're going to gain. And so many people look at me, a quadriplegic, paralyzed in this wheelchair, and they probably assume that all I ever think about when I think of heaven is getting back use of my body, glorified hands at work and feet that run, and I'll be able to jump up and do dance and kick and do aerobics and embrace my friends and feel my feet on running on a meadow or splashing in a stream or you know, reaching for any. They assume that I'm looking forward to heaven because I want my new body. Again, we often look at heaven as a place where we will get things or gain things or get back what we lost here on earth. But I tell you, Georgian, the more I study the Lord Jesus and fall in love with him, the more I want in heaven to have a new heart. I want a heart that's free of sin. I want a heart that no longer tries to twist the truth. I want a heart that doesn't um, uh, you know, fudge the truth or manipulate others with precisely timed phrases. It's not always hogging the spotlight. I want a heart that, that looks out for the interest of others first before my own. I want a heart that doesn't bear a grudge, that, that thinks the best of other people. I, mean, I want a heart that doesn't sin. I think that's what I am most looking forward to in heaven. Not a new body, but a new heart. Because heaven is a holy habitation for holy people. And if we don't get about the business of being holy as Christ is holy down here on earth, then there's going to be nothing appealing about heaven to draw us. So as I've fallen in love more with Christ, again, which has given me a longing for heaven, it means I want to get rid of sin in my life. I want to divest myself of self-interest, self-righteousness, self-awareness, self-consciousness, self-consumption. I I just want to get rid of the self and be less of me and have more of him. And this book will help people do just that. As they read, they'll journey with me 
in this whole exciting adventure of dying to yourself daily and rising with Jesus. Every morning I get up and I've got to go through a bed bath and people um, you know, doing my toileting routines and giving me leg exercises and putting on my clothes and strapping on my corset and lifting me in a wheelchair and brushing my teeth and brushing my hair. And I mean, every morning I've got to die to myself and say, no, I, 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 I can't. I can't allow pity, self-pity to overtake me. I've got to die to myself and my own wants and wishes. And I've got to rise to Jesus and his grace, his empowerment, his enablement. And, and, and that's the way to fall in love in heaven. Yeah. Die to yourself daily and, and, uh, and live for Jesus that day. And that begins with preparation even now in, in making that something that we desire here on earth. I know for many people, when they think about heaven, they just think about the absence of hell. If I can just escape hell, then that will be heaven. We just want to get there having little understanding or regard for what it, that might mean. But it's just an escape from something else. Similarly to, um, you know, the, the thought that heaven will relieve me of the things that I, uh, that I dislike here on earth. What do you say to those who... Uh, see heaven as just the opposite of, of hell in a place of uh, at least escaping that. Well, you know, um, I love what C.S. Lewis said, Georgine. He, he alluded something to the fact that that life here on earth, it's like, it's like reading the title page. It, that's all it is. It's not the real story, but we get caught up in it as though it were the real story. But life here on earth is but the title page. We turn that title page we leapfrog our tombstone. We enter through those gates of pearl and step into heaven. And that's when the real story begins. That's where chapter one begins. The real uh, story for which we were created. Uh, down here on earth is only preparation for that marvelous story yet to be lived up there. And God is fitting for us, uh, fitting us for heaven right now. And everything we do down here on earth, everything has a direct bearing on our capacity for joy and worship and service in heaven. Um, every drastic little obedience, every time we say no to temptation, every kind word we offer, every thoughtful deed we give to a neighbor, everything is accruing for us a larger capacity, a stretched and eternal capacity for bigger worship, greater joy and happier service in heaven. And Georgine, I don't wanna miss those opportunities. I don't want to meander through life with a ho-hum spiritual attitude, half-heartedly uh, in love with Jesus. I don't want um, to, to live a life of complaint and discontent. No, I'm not going to, I don't want to miss the opportunity of increasing my eternal capacity for serving Jesus and worshiping him and enjoying him forever. So I think Earth, for us, Earth's challenge is to see it as the minor leagues. We're in training for the major leagues in heaven, and I don't want to be less in the kingdom of heaven. Boy, it would be wonderful to one day be considered great in the kingdom of heaven because there will be degrees of joy and service and worship in heaven. Some will have lesser of a degree, uh, and others will have greater degrees. And how we live on earth uh, depends on where our eternal estate will be. So um, get busy about investing in heavenly glories above, like Colossians chapter 3 says, Set your mind, set your heart, set your focus on, on heaven above. And suffering down here on earth is a great way to do just that. Mm -hmm. 
Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Johnny Erickson Tata, the re-release of her book written back in the mid-90s, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, and she offers her perspective from 2018. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. She is the author of Heaven, Your Real Home, from a higher perspective. And this is the re-release of the book that she wrote originally in 1995. Of course, it's been updated from her perspective of uh, spiritual maturity. And it's just a delight to read. She's just a, such a beautiful writer. In fact, in the introduction, she writes, actual mountains and clouds are exalting, but even the most beautiful displays of Earth's glory, towering thunderheads above a wheat field, or the view of the Grand Canyon from the South Rim are only rough sketches of heaven. Earth's best is only a dim reflection, a preliminary render of the glory that will one day be revealed. I can just have that sense. It resonates in my heart, uh, that anticipation of heaven, and it really reflects and has a, an impact on what I do here on earth as we are preparing in the minor leagues for that major league day. Now, I would be remiss, and I know I would hear from listeners if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to ask you how you were doing. You mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that you have been diagnosed with stage three cancer. What does that mean for you, and how are you doing? Well, uh, they discovered this cancer back in early December of 2018, and uh, I had the tumor removed, and uh, currently I'm under radiation. Uh, Let's see, this morning was my 19th radiation Mm. treatment out of 35, so uh, tomorrow will will be number 20, and I'll have, uh, what, 15 more to go to reach 35, so I'm hanging in there. Um, Our listeners might think that my voice sounds a little froggy, a little weak. Well, it is, I guess, after so much radiation. Um, They have to protect my lungs as best they can, but uh, no doubt my lungs, as weak as they are as a quadriplegic, will be affected. But but that's okay. You know, here I am talking to you, expending breath, got lots of energy, and I'm extremely grateful to God. You know, when when I learned I got this, uh, this cancer, this reoccurring cancer for a second time, they told me that it was, uh, because it was occurring, it was going to be a little more aggressive and faster growing. But Psalm 112 has been such a mainstay, where the first few verses say, how joyful are those who fear the Lord. Such people will not be overcome by evil. They do not fear bad news. They're confident, and they can face their foes triumphantly because they trust that the Lord will care for them. And Georgine, that's, that's, that's my mainstay. I'm not going to fear this as bad news. I trust in a sovereign God who has everything under control. He knows what's best for my spiritual development. Um, and it's, this has bound my husband and me so much more closely together. Mm. My friends and I, are, they're all so much more supportive. And it's just wonderful to see this, this community that God has fashioned around this battle against cancer, a community of prayer, support, love, uh, fresh cooked meals brought to my front door. <laughs> it's, it's, been, um, it's been a great experience thus far. It really has. Mm. Well, I know many of our listeners are a part of that grand company that has been and will continue to pray for you and for your husband. 
so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, you write that uh, heaven is more real than we can imagine, too grand for the human mind to comprehend, too wondrous for our language to describe. And we do oftentimes struggle with what is heaven exactly? And you in the book, you, you give us what scripture has to say in a way that's perhaps a, a bit easier for us uh, to understand as you talk about what heaven is, what we will be like when we're there, and what to anticipate. And I think it really adds to our joy of anticipating and makes our, our suffering and our trials a bit more bearable. Well, I'm glad you said that about our suffering because uh, that is what really prepares us to meet God in heaven, our suffering. Because just think, suppose you never in your life knew physical pain. Suppose you've never had a sore back or twisted ankle, or decayed molar. I mean, how could you appreciate the scarred hands with which Christ will greet you? And now, it, 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 if Jesus went through so much suffering to secure for us that which we don't deserve, my goodness, why should we, why should we complain about our suffering here on earth? It's only a tiny fraction of what went through on our behalf. But if instead, when we suffer, if we would but stifle complaints, I rejoice in the privilege of participating in his sufferings. We're going to be overjoyed when glory bursts on the scene because Romans chapter 8 promises us we're going to share in his glory. You know, I've often said, Georgine, that in a way I hope I could take to heaven my old tattered Everson Jennings wheelchair. Hmm. I, know I'm not, I know I can't do that, <laughs> but if I could, I, I would, and I would point to the empty seat, and I would say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? For decades when you had me in it, I was paralyzed, but it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations that you endured when you laid aside your robes of glory to, 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 to enter into suffering, our suffering. And at that point, when I, when I say thank you, Jesus, he will know that I mean it because he will see and understand that I, too, have suffered. He will recognize me from having entered with him into that inner sanctum of fellowshipping and the sharing of his sufferings. And so when I get a chance to thank him, I'm going to say, Jesus, the weaker I felt in this wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. But the harder I did lean on you, Jesus, the more I discovered how strong you are. So thank you, Lord, for learning obedience in your suffering because you gave me the grace to yes. learn how to obey in my suffering. And yes. that, that, that one commonality we'll have, suffering, it's what is going to bind us so much more intimately together in heaven. Mm, that's so beautiful. Well, let me ask, what will we do in heaven? I think a lot of people have the misconception that heaven's going to be pretty boring because, you know, there's a lot to do here on earth, and the God of the universe who spoke this earth and everything on it into existence somehow is not creative enough to uh, design a heaven in which we will be challenged and joyful and, and uh, satisfied and so on. Well, for one thing, the Bible says we are going to judge fallen angels. Right beside the Lord Jesus, that's his co-heir, we will judge fallen angels. And, and Georgine, I, I don't know who those demons are, but I know they have harassed me at night at 4 a.m. when I have awakened in pain and I can't get back to sleep. And being paralyzed, I can't twist or turn on my mattress. I, I can't get, a, get in a different position. And I'll lie there and I'll feel harassed by doubting the goodness of God or I'll feel harassed by some demon whispering to me that, that God isn't fair. Look what he's making me go through. I mean, there's so many harassing spirits. And I don't know their names, and I don't care to know their names. 
but when I get to heaven, I'll get a chance to judge them. Mm. And my friends listening will do the same for every time they've been haunted by spirits of depression or despair or thoughts of suicide. I mean, these just aren't innocuous um, thoughts that, that flit in and out of our mind. No, Satan, our adversary, sends his minions to harass us and torment us just as they did Jesus, our elder brother. So we're going to get a chance to sit in judgment over those angels, and I, fallen angels, and I cannot wait for that day. And when they get thrown into the lake of fire, and from now on, it'll be the anointed of the Lord entering Zion with joy and gladness. Sorrow and sign shall flee away. Everlasting joy will crown our heads. And it, it is going to be not the day of Johnny or, the, or Georgine or the day of any of us who are listening in on this conversation. No, it's going to be the day of Christ. It's going to be Jesus' day. And I'm so excited about rejoicing with him at being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the whole universe. It's going to be quite a party. And so now the work that we have to do is issue party invitations. Come to the banquet. Don't miss out. It, it, you know, this is, this is one celebration that's going to last forever. And if we're going to get younger and younger and wiser and wiser, discovering things more and more. You know, I was talking to somebody just the other day about, he was saying, but heaven, isn't it going to be boring? I mean, worshiping God forever? That's like singing a praise song 1,495 times. You get so tired of it. Please let me sing something else. We're going to get bored. But I said to him, do you know that portion of scripture in Deuteronomy where the seraphim are praising God constantly, day in, day, day out, 24 hours? They're nonstop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Well, you might think that's boring, but what I like to think is God shows them some marvelous facet of his character, hmm. and when they see that facet, they go, oh, holy, 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 we didn't know you were like that, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. But then, in the middle of their praise, God will turn slightly like a diamond, revealing another amazing, new, brand new facet of his character, and the seraphim discovered that, and oh, my goodness, breathless, they go, holy, 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 we never knew that about you, God. And it's going to be like that for all of eternity. God is constantly going to be showing us something new, something fresh about himself for us to discover. And so no boredom in heaven, just one constant, oh, amazing breath of wonder after another as we discover more about him, discover more about ourselves, about each other, and about this marvelous plan for all of eternity that he has for us to rule the universe. I don't know what that means. But it sounds pretty exciting to me. It certainly does. Well, Johnny, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about the re-release of your book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. It certainly has been an inspiration to me, and I would recommend our listeners who want to know a little bit more about Jesus and that place that he is going to call us to. Um, this is a great book to do that. It's published by Zondervan. Lord bless you, and you will certainly be in our prayers. Thanks, Sir Jean. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Johnny Erickson Tata, one of the world's leading international advocates for people affected by disability, 50 plus years, 52 or 53 years in that wheelchair as a paraplegic and such ministry that has flowed from uh, this suffering heart is uh, just amazing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy and the Biden administration are saying there's an epidemic of loneliness among Americans, and that's been confirmed time and time again. It's true. There is an epidemic of loneliness in the country. But their proposed solution is, what if we actually use the government to fix loneliness? Well, Murphy is uh, posting some sort of legislation to establish a national strategy to combat loneliness and promote social connection. He says kids are addicted to algorithms and that evidence shows a decade ago when teenagers actually had to do more work to find things they cared about or to make connections with their peers rather than depend on the algorithm. They were actually happier. Again, that's very likely true. But it's not the real reason why kids are lonely. The algorithm is addictive. We know that. No, I would uh, not give my kid a cell phone with apps on them or access to social media. But blaming it on the decline of parental capacity to stop kids from accessing social media is, well, perhaps not the solution. The loneliness is really about the decline of community. Where is that decline of community coming from? Well, obviously, it's coming from a decline in religious affiliation. Ben Shapiro writes on the subject in which she thinks there's another solution to this problem. According to a brand new Gallup poll, the percentage of Americans who believe in five religious entities, God, angels, heaven, hell and the devil, have edged downward by three to five percentage points since 2016. Seventy four percent believe in God right now, which is down from 90 percent in 2001. That's a marked decline. If you believe there is no punishment in the afterlife, there goes uh, one of the incentive structures for not committing sins in this life for hedonistic purposes. The decline in religious affiliation is not just a matter of do you believe in God or not. I don't believe in the phrase believe in God. I don't think anybody sits around and mulls about God other than philosophy majors. Even people who are religious don't sit around thinking about God all the time. Well, maybe we should. They act in God and they live As people of faith, they live based on certain principles, godly principles, and then they enact those in their daily lives. So many agnostics, he goes on to suggest, and atheists are operating from religious principles. They just don't acknowledge it. If they believe there's a moral right and wrong, that is a religious principle. It's not discernible from evolutionary biology. If they believe the universe is a place you can actually understand that your brain reflects Eternal truths in the universe, that's a religious principle. You can't get uh, get that out of evolutionary biology or deterministic biology. You just can't. So if you live in that world, you're living in a religious world. If you acknowledge that, then you might form uh, communities of interest around those values. That's where churches have come in. The decline of church is directly correlated to the rise in loneliness because church is where people used to get together. It still is for a huge number of people. And while I don't embrace all of what Shapiro suggests, it does once again highlight the importance of church community and fellowship that's lacking in many uh, in many communities and many parts of um, our communities. And a Reminder that that's a great place for us to make the connections first with God himself and then with others uh, in a world riddled with loneliness. And then there's this. It's bad enough that there's a national effort underway to keep sexuality explicit uh, material in the hands of your children. And there's an effort to really do that. But why on earth are the American Library Association and former President Barack Obama promoting it? 
Well, as part of its Orwellian United Against Book Bans project, the ALA website lists the top 13 most challenged books of 2022. Now, what's noteworthy is it actually admits that every single book on the list is being challenged due to sexually explicit content. Yet this didn't stop Obama from writing an open letter to the ALA, the American Library Association, in which he tries to pull the wool over our eyes. In any democracy, he writes, the free exchange of ideas is an important part of making sure that citizens are informed, engaged and feel like their perspectives matter, he writes. It's so important, in fact, that here in America, the First Amendment of our Constitution states that freedom begins with our capacity to share and access ideas, even and maybe especially the ones we disagree with. Now, that's all perfectly true. But does that mean that young children should be exposed to sexually explicit material? Is there no such thing as age appropriate any longer? Does that mean that um, anyone of any age should be exposed to any kind of literature uh, at any time? How inspiring, how eloquent, how dangerously deceptive. Well, and how contradictory. For one, if our capacity to share and access ideas is so important to the president and the American Library Association, why are they censoring Americans with opposing political and social views, which is what the First Amendment is all about, to collude with big tech to censor certain social media posts? There was even a vote this week to prevent Robert F. Kennedy Jr., that was actually last week, from testifying at a hearing on censorship to which he was invited. In response to a letter signed by 102 of his fellow Democrats to prevent him from testifying before the House Judiciary Committee, Kennedy said flatly, this is an attempt to censor a censorship hearing. Now, the president said is so important, referring to the First Amendment, in fact, that here in America, the First Amendment of our Constitution states that freedom begins with our capacity to share and access ideas, even and maybe especially the ones we disagree with. That seems to be unevenly applied when we're talking about children being exposed to pornography. That ought to be promoted. But the freedom of speech and the political sense, which is what they were uh, thinking about. Not so much. Well, beyond that, there's an effort underway in which banks and other companies are shutting down accounts of people with unpopular political beliefs. Yet somehow we're supposedly threatening our sacred constitutional freedoms for wanting to keep Lawn Boy and the hips of the drag queen go swish, swish, swish out of the hands of third graders. In truth, conservatives and other good people, not all conservatives, but good people who want to keep these books out of the schools, aren't trying to ban the adventures of Huckleberry Finn as the Democrats have done in the past. Well, as the editors of the National Review wrote in an unfortunately necessary graphic explanation, the book that is most commonly described as having been banned by which critics uh, do not actually mean ban, but rather move to a different section within or removed completely from public school libraries, is Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi, or something very like that, a graphic work that, among other things, includes depictions of minors performing uh, acts that are well beyond their years, male adults um, and others, adult men, and, well, we'll leave it at that. Well, they add others on the banned lists are Let's Talk About It, which features graphic illustrations, Flamer, a book about young boys engaging in um, acts at summer camp, and This Book is Gay, a book that demonstrates the ins and outs of, of sex. Well, that accounts for Barack Obama having left out these crucial, revealing, and, let's face it, grotesque details. Could it be that he wants you to think right-wing parents are pulling Dr. Zeus books, or Seuss, 
Zeus is someone else, off the shelves of an elementary school. Well, never mind. Democrats are actually the ones who claim Dr. Seuss books were too dangerous and racist for kids to read. Well, think about it. The very books Obama wants to keep on the shelves of elementary and middle schools contain such graphic images and language that they couldn't be read on broadcast television or the evening news. But the groomers writing and pushing these books enjoy the political and financial support of at least one political party. They are bent on making sure kids get to read the most vile, inappropriate material in school that they're forcing it on um, on them, whether we like it or not. Just this week, for example, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced plans to send textbooks to Temecula Valley Unified School District featuring information about gay rights activist Harvey Milk, even after the school board voted to reject the book. Shouldn't local school boards be in charge of local school libraries? Well, that's increasingly no longer the case. But that's where we stand today in the 21st century in our libraries for kids. We're out of time. I do want to thank uh, Dave King for engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.